Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, writer of Habeas Corpus 2, Habeas Corpuser. <laughs> I'm sure you'd take that gig if you if you could get it. Well, you know, since we're uh, going already with fun facts, there was a film company that did try to option Habeas Corpus after this movie came out. Oh, like as, but there's nothing to option. It doesn't exist. What would they have even done? Oh, yeah, Josh, if I had told you in like the 90s that like, hey, this movie was just optioned, it's Legos. Would you be like, oh, that makes sense. It doesn't I, matter. Not right, a fair I, point. I guess so. I guess so. But I feel like Legos has a brand name and this is just like, it's like optioning a, a, a joke or something. I don't know. I'm glad that didn't work out because I'm sure it would have been terrible. And uh, the whole point of habeas corpus is that it is terrible, but we're getting ahead of ourselves anyway. What are we talking about? This season of Awesome Movie Year is all about the films of 1992, and we are here at our Cannes Film Festival award winner episode. We are not talking about the Palme d'Or winner, which uh, we sometimes do, but sometimes don't. Uh, the Palme d'Or winner at Cannes in 1992 is a uh, Swedish film written by uh, Ingmar Bergman and directed by Billy August called, uh, hang on. The Best Intentions. There you go. The Best Intentions that I had to write down the name of that movie. But um, <laughs> it's uh, it's a feature film, like sort of condensation of a six-hour miniseries. I don't know. It didn't seem like something that uh, would make for the best episode for us. So instead, actually, as we've done before with Cannes in 1977, when we bypassed the Palme d'Or winner for something else, we're talking about a Robert Altman movie. In this case, it's Robert Altman's The Player, which won both Best Director for Robert Altman and Best Actor for Tim Robbins at that 1992 Cannes Film Festival. And it's a movie about movies, so right. why wouldn't we talk about it here on Awesome Movie Year? Yeah, I mean, the only thing better than that would be a movie about podcasting, I guess, which <laughs> uh, definitely didn't exist in 1992. My gleaming the cube. Uh, no, my pump up the volume remake to come. There you go. That's totally nice. uh, that's totally a thing that could happen. I think I said gleaming the cube because Michael Tolkien, who wrote this screenplay and was the author of the player, the novel, also wrote the screenplay for gleaming the cube which we covered in 1989. We did. And, and part of the reason that there's such solid insider knowledge is that Michael Tolkien is a screenwriter of kind of Hollywood, uh, well, let's not say trash, but mainstream Hollywood product. He has the right experience in this world to know how to write about it. Well, yeah, I mean, but the stuff he's been doing now is uh, really interesting since, you know, the content boom, the last two limited serious things he's been doing is uh, re really taken off. Right. But he had this career in mainstream Hollywood stuff, working as like a script doctor and things like that. So he knows he knows this world. I think the authenticity comes through because Michael Tolkien has sat in these meetings. I mean, Altman, I'm sure, has, too. But Tolkien, even more so, is from this kind of mainstream Hollywood uh, environment. And Altman at this time was, you know, this was his big comeback into Hollywood. Not that he was ever not making movies, but he was always on the fringes. And 
this movie, which very much feels like it was an indie with just uh, a billion stars in it, you know, wouldn't have felt like a comeback. But I'm sure Hollywood was like, hey, it's about us. We love it. You know, and, um, you know, we we I think we probably all like this one a lot, too. Yeah, I certainly did. And but you're right that Altman, he thrived in the 70s in that sort of new Hollywood era when all of these auteurs were getting attention from the studios, getting budgets. That was what they wanted to make. And as we talked about when we did our episode on Heaven's Gate, that era kind of came to a crash in the early 1980s. And Altman spent the 80s, like you said, he was making movies. He never stopped, but much, much more on the fringes, smaller budgets, smaller releases. And this did kick off a sort of Altman renaissance in the 90s. Uh, and and deservedly so. It is not only is Altman a genius who should have never been on the outs, but this is a great movie and certainly one of his best. I agree. And, you know, the thing is, whether it's a great movie or not one of his best, it's always so interesting what he's doing. And he's got such a particular style that we've talked about kind of in uh, our 77 episode, Three Women. So um, it's just, um, yeah, he should always get to make movies, except now because he's dead. But maybe he's making movies in heaven and I'd be cool with that. Maybe. Maybe we'll come up with the technology to reanimate him and then he'll get to make movies again. Oh, or he could be the evil Altman because something's gone wrong in the code. So mm. all of the movies are don't have an independent spirit. They're just Hollywood schlock, like yeah. the stuff that Griffin Mill go. would agree light right. in this film. Yeah. So. Evil Altman. Sounds good. Um, so this movie. An Alt-Altman, Josh? Mm. You're on a roll there, man. <laughs> <laughs> you really are. So this movie was a big hit. Uh, I mean, for for a film like this that, like you said, is essentially an indie production, even though it was embraced by Hollywood, it wasn't actually a studio release, but it grossed $28.9 million on its $8 million budget, which is, you know, quite good for a film at this level. Also was highly acclaimed and awarded in addition to those two awards at Cannes. It was nominated for three Oscars for Best Director for Altman, Best Adapted Screenplay, for Michael Tolkien and best editing for Geraldine Peroni. And the editing in this movie is fantastic. And it won two Golden Globes in the musical or comedy section for best picture and for best actor for Tim Robbins and a whole long, long list of other sort of minor awards that this movie uh, was given by critics groups and things like that. Yeah, it was um, just to add on to that, Josh, it was on 80 year end best of lists. And the only movie that was on more at the end of the year was Howard's End, a Merchant Ivy production. Which I've never seen, actually. But I'm sure I haven't either, great. but Emma, Emma Thompson won for Best Actress. And this is what uh, Michael Howard's End, I think, is what Michael Tolkien lost the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay to. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, that's certainly a highly acclaimed film, but uh, not not something that I ever... Saw. And speaking of those top 10 lists, both Siskel and Ebert had it on their top 10s. Uh, Siskel at number two, Ebert at number eight. Um, I didn't find the uh, initial review, uh, but I'm sure they had given it two thumbs up because they both liked it very much. Four stars from each of them. Yes. And Ebert did. He gave it four stars, four out of four stars in his review. And he said, Robert Altman's The Player, which tells Griffin Mill's story, that's Tim Robbins' character, with a cold, sardonic glee, is a movie about today's Hollywood, hilarious and heartless in about equal measure, and often at the same time. This is material Altman knows from the inside and the outside. He is back in glorious vengeance, with a movie that is not simply about Hollywood, but about the way we live now, 
in which the top executives of many industries are cut off from the real work of their employees and exist in a rarefied atmosphere of greedy competition with one another. As someone who grew up on his great films, it gives me such pleasure to see him make another one. So that's from 1992. And I think we can all agree it's a good thing society has changed and these executives <laughs> now are <laughs> so much better now. Yeah, yeah, they're relating more and care more about their employees. Mm -hmm. There's more of an equal share. So mm -hmm. that, that's been a good change of society over yeah. time. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I do think Ebert is maybe, not that he's wrong about society, but I don't know that this movie is making as expansive a statement as he indicates, although you can certainly interpret it that way. I, I think more to me, it's like, you know, what I would compare it to now is like how um, self-involved they all are and how in their own bubble they all are. So you could really easily compare it to like social media stars, influencers, stuff like that. And I think you know, outside of the bubble, there's nothing they have. Right. So um, that that's what I think if you were to kind of update this, uh, that's where it could go. Yeah. I mean, you could make it about I mean, obviously, you could still make it about a movie studio. Those are still uh, a thing and still have a lot of power and influence. You can make it about a streaming company. Um, but it's hard because speaking of bubbles, you know, we think of something like the bubble the Judd Apatow movie that's clearly influenced by the player. And it's hard to do it right. I know Dave hated that movie so much and I didn't like Worst. it either. I'm excited because uh, that was one of the things I wanted to talk about on this episode, our favorite films about the film industry, which right. we could get into later. But, you know, the Tolkien did write a sequel to the player in 2006 and it sounded strange that Griffin Mills, you know, um, you know, he's on his second wife, his kids hate him. He's losing money and he thinks the world's ending and he has to deal with like that kind of corporate um, uh, kind of CEO type. But I don't know if it would have been like in the tech industry or whatever, but like to kind of reform, he had to go to like a Jeff Bezos type and, and kind of go there. I never uh, read it. Dave doesn't know how to read Josh. I don't think you read it either. No, no, nor did I read the original novel that it's based on. But um, I, I did. I just was browsing through some Goodreads reviews of the, the return of the player. And it doesn't sound like it's very good. And it's, I'm sure, difficult, as we're saying, not only for someone else like Judd Apatow in the bubble, but even for people who worked on this, even if Altman was still alive, I think it would be very difficult to recapture this and to do it in a way that is as clever and effective as it is in, in this movie. Because one of the easiest, laziest things to do is to make a movie about making a movie and just kind of throw together some obvious jokes. And, you know, that's what most people end up doing, I think, with stuff like that. In summation, Return of the Player, bad. Return of the Mac by Mark Morrison, a classic. That's definitely the, the ultimate takeaway from this episode. <laughs> I had a feeling we were going in that direction. <laughs> yeah. Of course. <laughs> um, but you're right, Josh. Like, I mean, they, this is a clever film and it's actually making points and utilizing the industry jargon and the kind of relationships to further a story as opposed to just be like, hey, look at us. We're all so great. Here's a funny joke where we take ourselves down a peg. Right, exactly. And that's what most of those do. So Vincent Canby in the New York Times said, there is not really that much of a story to the player, though it is breezy fun. The film is a grand Hollywood fresco that depicts the eccentric passion of Griffin Mill as he goes to his destiny, sometimes godlike and sometimes like a bewildered, amoral pilgrim. As a satire, the player tickles. It doesn't draw blood. 
It says nothing about Hollywood that Hollywood insiders don't say with far more venom in their hearts. Mr. Altman's most subversive message here is not that it's possible to get away with murder in Hollywood, but that the most grievous sin, in Hollywood terms anyway, is to make a film that flops. Right. That's kind of what we're saying. It, uh, as long as you keep, I guess now over the last few years, like there's been some responsibility taken for a lot of uh, sins of uh, Hollywood moguls. But a lot of these people who are making a lot of money got away with a lot of stuff for a long time. Yeah. And, and many of them still do. And even when some of those stories come out, aside from the most horrifically egregious cases, people often don't face a whole lot of consequences. But I think also what Canby is saying here is that this isn't a really harsh satire. And that's not and, and, and that it's not meant to be either. That despite all of Altman's struggles, he does still have affection for a lot of the kind of stuff that goes on in this movie. Yeah. Even Altman says we were too nice to Hollywood. They liked the movie too much. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And I don't think that's necessarily a problem because I don't want to see a movie that hates movies. You know, I think this is a movie that loves movies and is pointing out the obstacles that exist to make movies that are great. That movie is called The Bubble, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but Josh, you're right, because one of the, the wonderful things about this movie as a movie fan is all the homages to kind of that noir and mystery and the way he's using those snaps with the camera. And it's just such a like masterful um, effort on his part. Right, right. And something like, not to keep harping on the bubble, but something like that, which feels just like an extended uh, sketch, you know, an extended comedy sketch or whatever, like, this is a movie. And Altman announces it right from that opening. Oh, my shot. God. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's like one of the best shots that we've ever covered in a film. Like, we yeah. talk about that tracking shot in The weekend in 1967. Yes. Right? And that's a four-minute shot. This shot goes on for seven minutes and 47 seconds, and it kind of switches focus and you know movement you know like it just goes all over the place and and switches subjects and like you almost have that's one of my favorite things about this movie i watched it this week i could watch it again today and i would learn so many new things yeah that shot is is amazing and it's not only just like look at what i can do uh it establishes like the themes of the movie and the characters and everything that you need to know to get into this world purpose and pace josh yes all of that so finally, Peter Rayner in the Los Angeles Times said, despite its deep down wit and its off-center movie star cameos, the player is unspeakably sad and unsettling because Altman doesn't hold out a prayer that any art can come out of all of this. The irony, of course, is that Altman has made a movie that's supremely deft and pleasurable. As if to taunt his detractors, he even, quote, tells a story this time, and he does a better job of it than the hacks who have been getting work when he couldn't. The real murder in the player is the murder of the art of film, and Altman indicts the audience right along with the Hollywood sahibs up on the screen. Again, 1992, I think we can all agree that mainstream film has once again come back and is <laughs> ready for more individual and unique voices, independent yes. stories. Yeah, yeah. So. Like, it's good that all these things have changed and gone the opposite way that these critics were saying in 1992 that what they recognized. Yeah, Griffin Mill now would be what? He would be greenlighting superhero movies or whatever, trying to find comic books to adapt into film or, or maybe toys. You know, he'd be limited the executive, series, maybe. Right. You know, could so. be could be looking for new true true crime 
Uh, he'd, oh, yeah. he'd be making he'd be making the movie The Player that, you know, to skip ahead to the end that he gets pitched, you know, the movie about his own thing. But, uh, you know, if this was a real thing and David Kahane, the screenwriter, had really been murdered in 1992, there would definitely be a podcast about it. It'd be a season of You Must Remember This or something. Yeah, uh, something on One Tree or something, The Player. And then they would adapt that to uh, a docu-series and then they would adapt that to a narrative limited series and say like, well, we're just covering it from a different angle, (laughs) you know, and it's like exhausting to me. It is. It is. That is kind of the 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 new uh, sort of Hollywood cannibalization that's uh, that's going on. And uh, it's quite sad. But um, I think one of the one of the things that Peter Rayner points out there is that Altman and and we probably talked about this in Three Women has you know uh, often a criticism of his artsier films is that they don't have narrative they don't tell a story per se and that's certainly the case in that movie, but he does tell a very entertaining story here. It is this sort of noir crime story as well as the Hollywood satire. And there's that one scene where Griffin Mill is telling uh, June, play, Greta, Greta Skaki's character, who is the girlfriend of the screenwriter that he's killed, uh, he's telling her about all the elements that have to be present for the studio to greenlight a movie, suspense and violence and nudity and sex and a happy ending and a couple other things. And of course, it's it's a great scene because on the one hand, it shows the cynicism of the studio and their narrow conception of what kind of movie can be made. But on the other hand, the player has every single right. one of those elements. Yeah. <laughs> and June has one of the great last names in film history, Gudman Soder. Yes, yes. Which is <laughs> which is a, as she says, she's Icelandic, although it, it comes up that maybe she's lying about that. But yeah. that that is a, an Icelandic Fact, York's I wonder, last name. It's right, York's, it's last, York's name. last name, right? Which it just means the daughter of of Goodman or whatever. That's how the uh, Icelandic people make their last names. Look at Josh making <laughs> yeah. moves with learning about Latin. Icelandic Icelandic last so, names. So wait, I have a question, right? <laughs> oh, if please ask the, me more about Icelandic <laughs> culture because yeah. I'm an expert. So if you're the if you're the daughter of Goodman, <laughs> yeah, and then and then you have another kid. Is that person Goodman Soder Soder? No, no, no. They, they that's the thing is like I think still their last names are not passed down. So if June had a daughter, her daughter's last name would be June's daughter. I believe. That's wild, dude. This is crazy. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh it's weird. And also there's only like four names in Iceland, I think. So everyone has the same name pretty much. So if, if you, you watch the well, wait also, a second. Yeah, please, if, please. They so have another No, leave this. This that is fascinating. This is so if June had a daughter and named her June, would her name be June June's daughter? Yeah. Well, just like if your name is Johnson and you name your son John, then his name is John Johnson. You know, that's that's what you're stuck with. So wild. Yes. Yeah. I, I was going to say that I, I believe the uh, brilliant cultural anthropology film uh, Eurovision, the story of fire saga also addresses <laughs> some of this because those characters are Icelandic. <laughs> anyway, the player is the movie that we're talking about right now. So, Jason, had you seen this one before? Yeah, I think the first time I saw it was in our own film club with our friend Tony Macklin. I liked it then. I liked it just as much this time. Yeah, I saw it in 
high school, I think maybe I want, I maybe even in 1992, for whatever reason, I think I rented this one from Blockbuster. And this was the first Robert Altman movie I had seen. And I, my teenage self was like blown away by this movie and was like, Robert Altman is a genius. And then sought out other Robert Altman films, although he's very, very prolific. And a lot of his films, I think even still are, are sort of tough to track down. So I didn't see that many. But I loved this movie then, and I remember watching it in Film Club with Tony Macklin, who is a big Altman fan, and I believe has interviewed Robert Altman. I think Tony's uh, book, Voices from the Set, features one of his interviews with Robert Altman, maybe from the set of Three Women, actually. So we, I think we watched a couple of Altman movies in that Film Club with Tony Macklin, and, uh, and I love this again this time. It's a great, great movie, and uh, shout out to Tony Macklin. So uh, Dave, did you see this uh, when it came out? I did not. I actually watched it for the first time last year uh, as an obvious puzzle piece for Jim Cummings' The Beta Test. Mm. And this, of course, uh, really overshadowed that. <laughs> right. Yeah, The Beta <laughs> Test is all right. but And, and certainly heavily influenced by The Player. But yes, The Player is much better. I, uh, yeah. I agree. Josh, I can give you a little more background here. Mm. Some some fun facts, if you Ooh, will, Josh. The facts are they as fun as our facts about Icelandic last? I don't know though? if that's even possible, Josh. <laughs> so, those were pretty good. Yeah, yeah those wow. were those were excellent. I'm I'm proud of you for that. So obviously, we mentioned the three Oscar nods. It lost uh, best director to Clint Eastwood uh, for Unforgiven, which we'll be talking about uh, later in this season. Uh, that was also the best picture winner. Ruth Power Javbala was the writer who won for Howard's End, and Joel Cox won best editing. For also for Unforgiven. But Altman did win a uh, BAFTA for directing and Tolkien won a BAFTA for adapted screenplay. This also has 65 celebrity cameos, Josh, and the most Oscar winners in any film ever because of all those cameos. Yeah, <laughs> and presumably that's the, that's the way you get a record like that is by having just people show up for two seconds because of their status or whatever. But it is amazing to see the cameos. And it's also funny, I think, to see the cameos, uh, the sort of range of people who are have a legacy of being famous and beloved and people who were famous in 1992, like young MC, you know, people who would not have cameos in a Hollywood sort of satire now, but, but good for them for being famous at that very particular moment to get in this film. Um, all of them, there was no dialogue written for any of them. So there were, whatever you see was just improvised in the moment. Who did young MC play? I don't even. He plays himself. He's just sitting. I wouldn't have even noticed him, but I was looking at the credits. He's he's listed under playing themselves with all the various other people. Marvin Young. I think he's sitting at a table in the scene where they're presenting the exhibit, the the gala to open the exhibit at the L.A. Museum of Art. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure I spotted someone where I was like, that guy kind of looks familiar. And that was who it was. So. If he had busted a move, maybe I would have recognized him. <laughs> That's what this or... movie needed was more busting of moves. So, <laughs> mm. uh, yes. Uh, any any other background info you want to yes, mention Yes, Josh. Here? Uh, Return of the Mac reached okay. number one on the UK singles charts <laughs> and number you. two here on the Billboard Hot 100. Return of the Mac and Young MC, <laughs> the very important topics on this episode. Uh, we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on the player. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about Cannes Film Festival award winner, The Player. And I, we all liked this movie. I think it's safe to say, well, we all liked it quite a bit. So uh, that's nice. 
It's always good when that happens. Yeah, that's nice. See you next week. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how we would have felt about that six hour Swedish movie. Probably less enthused. Would it, had we had watched that, would we have seen a six hour version? No, 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 no. It's a, it's a three hour feature film version that was uh, shown at Cannes and that is available to stream. If you want to go stream it, it is available to watch, but we did not decide to do that. Well, I think uh, this really takes you into that whole LA world, you know, the scenery, the setting, how everything revolves around the trades back then. And, Mm. you know, oh, you know, Larry Levy's coming in. That's the news of the day, right? He's going to replace Griffin Mill. And, you know, like you said, Josh, just from that opening shot, you get all of this amazing setup. They said it took 15 takes to get it um, or 10. They used the 10th take, but they shot it 15 times. But I love not just that shot, just so many of the shots, these snap zooms and you you get that real feel that you're like, you, you know, you're almost the detective watching the detective solve this thing. Right, right. And it's weird because it's like, it's not a murder mystery in that we all know that Griffin Mill has killed David Kahane, the screenwriter played by Vincent D'Onofrio, who he believes is the one who's harassing him, but is not. Um, but there is sort of a mystery of who is really the screenwriter who's harassing him. And we never get to find out, I don't think. Um, I don't know if there are theories about that. I was trying to, I was wondering because my thought, not not my personal theory, but my thought that this was the case, but I don't know if it is because in that opening shot, we see a screenwriter who's kind of bothering Griffin Mill saying, hey, you said you get back to me or we have a meeting in a couple of days, but I want to pitch you right now. And then Griffin Mill calls studio security and says, don't let this guy on the lot. And then obviously forgets about him and never even remembers him when he's trying to figure out who's harassing him. Um, and I had thought, oh, I bet that turns out to be the guy because that's kind of an ironic comeuppance. But I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Right, because he didn't even remember who David Kahane was. He had to look him up. So it could have been any one of those hacky schlub writers. Writers are such losers. <laughs> they are. They are indeed. Uh, Jason, I know you've had many instances of uh, people, producers who don't call you back. <laughs> yeah, I'm a loser writer, Josh. So. <laughs> no, I'm saying it's a common experience, even for uh, even for talented writers like Jason. Yeah, you go into the meeting. Oh, this is great. We got it. We got to do something together. Cool. We'll uh, follow up and then you never hear anything again. But uh it's interesting because at one point, like the two twin writers are like basically making their own deal. Like we just want a home. And it's like, huh, that's interesting that you could just make your own deal. You didn't need any manager or agent to do that for you. But um, yeah, it's uh, I think like if you make this today, what would really be interesting or what are the movies that these writers are pitching? Right. Right. Like because we were talking about just this like shallow pool of like intellectual property to choose from. So how do you go in and pitch these stories now today? Right. I mean, it would be these writers are pitching like, oh, this podcast that we can adapt or they're just all pitching. I think what it would be is they'd all be pitching on a Marvel movie. Right. They'd all be pitching the same movie. They would all just be pitching their slight variation on some comic book character that the studio owns the rights to that they're trying to find somebody to write about. So, well, the, the new the new guy that was coming in who was like looking at newspaper headlines like that's that's the true crime thing. Right yeah. Now. Larry Levy. That's true. Yes. Who, who decides that writers are. Uh, uh, are a, a part of the process that are not necessary and that we, right, should, absolutely. we should just eliminate <laughs> them entirely because we're paying them far too much for their screenplays. 
Josh, one thing uh, about this, we all like this movie. We admit, I think one negative is how quickly the feelings between Griffin and June develop. It's like after one conversation, and I get that we have to move the story along, but there was nothing there that told me that they connected to the point where they did. I guess, but I think two things about that. One, these are shallow people who have shallow, easy emotions, and I think we're supposed to get that. And two, at least to me, partly that seemed like another homage to old Hollywood films, where if you watch films from like 30s and 40s, characters fall in love in like two seconds. It's mm. very, very, very quick. And 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 one other thing that uh, that June says in the scene where Griffin comes over to her house late at night and he's all rattled, rattled because he's had a rattlesnake planted in his car mm. by the one who's harassing him and he feels like he's almost died. Um, and he's saying all these nice things about her and she says, are you making love to me? Which of course in 1992 as well as today means having sex, but that's mm. something that they would say in a 40s movie when it didn't mean that, it just meant like wooing or whatever. And so that to me was kind of a subtle indication that that was what they're referencing. Josh is a linguistics master today, Dave. He's all yeah. about it. So, um, you know, as opposed to that, one of the strengths that was uh, highly regarded was the way that Altman shot that um, love scene between the two, which I had read it was because Greta Scacchi? Greta Scacchi? Scacchi, I think. Yeah. Uh, she would not do a nude scene. So Altman, you know, did that in that close up. But that scene is so intimate because that's where Griffin admits the murder to her that. Um, and and she says, she's just like, I don't, you know, leave, let's leave the past in the past. I love you. I don't want to hear it. It really works. It really, really works. It does. And because also the focus, it's such a close up and the focus is like on their mouths and on the words that he's speaking, which is what's the emphasis there in that scene. So, yeah, I, I agree. If if that was one case where where maybe Altman was forced into changing his plan, it, it turned out uh, it turned out well. And, and and Greta Skaki is good in this film. I think, you know, there's a lot of focus on Tim Robbins and, and deservedly so. But she plays, you know, he's this shallow Hollywood executive who is 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 sort of held up as like anti-art, right? Even though Griffin makes some protestations to uh, movies being art, you know, he's part of this machine that takes the art out of movies. And she's sort of shallow on that other end where she is actually an artist. She's a painter. We see her constantly making her art, but she's just as vapid as he is. You know, there's that great line when he asks her about like, does she read? And she says no. And she's like, I like letters and words, but I'm not crazy about complete sentences. <laughs> that <me>. is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, my favorite scene in this movie, and I think like if you were like, hey, show me what a Robert Altman scene is with all the rhythms and kind of movement, is the scene where the detectives bring him Griffin in to question him. Yeah, And there's so many different things going on. The two female detectives are talking about different tampon sizes and Lyle Lovett's character is trying to kill a fly right at the same time. Yes. And so they're having like three or four actions and and discussions all at once. And they're all hilarious and all like kind of escalate the scene. And I just feel like that's like that's just one of my favorite scenes. It's very funny. And it's it's got these increasing close-ups on Tim Robbins' face because he's like, what is going on here? And of course, Griffin Mill is worried that he's going to be arrested for murder and he's all tense and also just confused and whatever. And those those detectives are great because you get the sense that they are 100% sure 
that Griffin Mill has committed this murder and they don't really care. They're just enjoying fucking with him and they're not really trying to get him arrested or anything like that. When I, I, one thing that was jarring for me in the movie is when I first saw Whoopi Goldberg's, you know, character, she was holding up the Oscar, right? And everything. And you see all these big stars playing themselves at this point in time, other than Tim Robbins, right? And then you see kind of these like working actors playing all the other characters. So I figured that it must have been Whoopi Goldberg in, uh, you know, a cameo to come in and pitch because she was the only other really huge star playing a character. Right. And I think that's meant to be it's, it's meant to be that because, of course, Whoopi Goldberg actually had won an Oscar two years earlier for Ghost. So the idea of Whoopi Goldberg's character being like, oh, can I just touch the Oscar? Can I hold it? I'm amazed by it is is also a little inside joke there, certainly. So many jokes on jokes on jokes. There are, there are, and and but I think you can still enjoy this movie um, if you don't know every single one of those people. I mean, I think just because of the passage of time, again, there's cameos like Young MC or whatever that viewers right now would not recognize. Um, even people like us who were around in 1992 might not remember every one of these these people. But you can still just enjoy this because of the focus on Griffin Mill and his uh, wrestling with his guilt. And 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 the saga that that comes up later in the movie than I had realized it's like the middle of the movie, at least where Dean Stockwell and Richard E. Grant show up as the characters who pitch habeas corpus and and sort of the way that that movie develops and ends up as the the climax of this film. And, and it's sort of commentary on Hollywood with the with the end product of habeas corpus. Right. It's this we got to tell the truth. We got to have truth in this. There can't be any stars because it'll take away from the truth. And then, of course. They go the complete opposite opposite way because every time any movie is being pitched here in 1992, we need a young, hot starlet like Julia Roberts. They always mention Julia Roberts and Bruce Willis. So those are the stars you get at the end. Very funny. Um, and Josh, of course, we would be remiss here on Awesome Movie Year if we didn't mention Buck Henry pitching The Graduate 2. Yes. Which I think we probably discussed in our 60. I know when we discussed The Graduate, right? Yeah, I don't know if we specifically discussed that, but we certainly discussed the actual sort of graduate right, the two, book the, the book, and 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 the unofficial graduate two. Uh, rumor has it the Rob Reiner film with Jennifer Aniston as essentially the character that Buck Henry pitches for Julia Roberts to play, and of course Jennifer Aniston is like the Julia Roberts of of ten years after this or whatever. Right. So uh, this again. The the movie's prescient. The reviews are prescient. It's a, a very interesting movie in that regard. Right. And and I think also it is just an entertaining story on its own. We we get this noir style thing of Griffin Mill having this anguish. And he doesn't necessarily seem like he feels guilty about killing David Kahane, which is, to be fair, kind of an accident. But still, um, he is attacking him, even if he doesn't mean to kill him. Uh, he doesn't seem to feel guilty about that, but he's very paranoid about being arrested and or being ousted from his position at the studio, which is uh, always very precarious with Peter Gallagher's character coming in and potentially taking over. So, I mean, there is a lot to hold on to there from a story standpoint beyond just like, isn't it funny what kind of dumb stuff they do in Hollywood? And on top of that, you have what we've already talked about, this incredible camera work that you can just watch over and over and uh, editing um, that's just masterful as well. You know, um, the editor there, da, 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 Geraldine Peroni did eight Altman movies. So she really kind of understood his rhythms. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things, like you said, those celebrities are all just given improvised dialogue. And there's a lot of scenes where the dialogue kind of overlaps or we're focusing on characters in the background who are talking and we see other people having like snippets of conversation in the foreground. And that's a very Altman thing. And right. I'm sure as he shoots all of that, that Geraldine Peroni is then left with a whole bunch of footage that she has to shape into the movie that Altman wants. And that's a tough thing to do. But this is a very masterfully edited film. I think so, Josh. Um, I do want us to talk about other uh, movies about movies for a minute, but would do you want to rate this thing first? Well, one other, I just one other quick point that I wanted to make that I think is something great about this film, about what Altman does and what Tim Robbins does, is that we really like Griffin Mill, or at least I kind of felt that way. That this is a terrible guy who does terrible things, but the performance and the way he's portrayed makes him into this kind of sympathetic guy that he has good qualities or he has the right intentions at certain times. And so we're not just like, oh, I hate him. I hope he gets his comeuppance. We can watch him and get invested in what happens to him. You know, he's a complex character who's not just a bad guy. So I, I like that a lot about this. Film. I mean, that must be really hard for you to reconcile because, uh, as you know, on this show, many times you've stated your stance, murder is bad. Right. And so someone who commits sure. a murder that I can still appreciate as the character is uh, is a, quite an achievement for Robert Altman. So one of his many. Yes. Uh, well, yeah. So should we rate this out of five uh, movie star cameos? Sure. Five movie star cameos. It gets four for me. It's a great movie. And I think um, even if I felt the story was three and a half, just the, the camera movement just bumps that whole thing up for me. But I, I'll watch this again and I'll be happy to watch this again. Four movie star cameos. Yeah, it is just an incredibly well-constructed film. I'm going to give it four out of five movie star cameos as well. And it's certainly still one of my favorite Robert Altman films. Uh, Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going four and a half. All right. Cameos. I don't know. Who would be a half a cameo? I don't know. Young MC. Sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we'll come back then and talk about the legacy of the player. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about Cannes Film Festival award winner, The Player. And as far as its legacy goes, Jason, you want to talk about other movies about movies. What are your favorites? Yeah, I think it's because uh, I love movies about movies. And I know like sometimes they say, oh, you should never make movies about movies because people in Iowa don't know. And it's like, you're an idiot, man. Good stories are good stories, right? Yes. So, I mean, I think you go back to like, if I, I'm going to say movies about Hollywood more than movies about movies, Josh, okay. right? All so. Right. So Sunset Boulevard and Singing in the Rain were kind of two of the earliest ones uh, that, I, that I put down. In the 90s, uh, Swimming with Sharks, which we have talked about covering. And then, uh, of course, in the late 90s and 2000s, you had Tropic Thunder, you had Bowfinger. Uh, before that, you had Barton Fink, Dave had Adaptation, and I had The Aviator. So those were a lot that I put down. What did I miss, Josh? I don't know. I didn't prep this, so I'm just having to do off the top of my head. But I, I do, I do love Sunset Boulevard, and uh, and I love Barton Fink uh, of, among those that you mentioned. The Aviator, I also love, but I never really think of particularly as a movie about movies. But I guess it really is. I mean, Kate Blanchett won an Oscar, right, for playing Catherine Hepburn in that film. And how much more movie about movie can you get? And, and you know, the whole idea of that, uh, the filming of that, those aerial sequences. 
uh, while uh, Howard Hughes is making those movies. I think, uh, yeah, I count it as a movie about movies. I mean, the other the other way I went with it, Josh, is all those documentaries about uh, making movies, which we, we've talked about, obviously, with American movie. We've mentioned Burden of Dreams before. There's Hearts of Darkness. There's Lost in La Mancha. There's a lot of good documentaries about making movies also. Yeah, I haven't seen Hearts of Darkness, but Lost in La Mancha is is very good. And of course, American movie that we talked about. Um, so because I didn't prep this, I, I'm just thinking of things that I saw recently. Um, there was a movie out right about the now. Bubble. The Bubble? Yeah, not the Did you see The Bubble, Jason? No, because I mean, first of all, it didn't look good to me. Dave and I covered it on Piecing It Together, the trailer episode, and it didn't look good. But I, I would have given it a chance. But you, everyone has trashed it and it's long and everyone seems to hate it. Yeah, it's very bad. It's very bad. But uh, a movie that is not bad that I saw recently, uh, it's not about Hollywood, but it actually, if we did a Piecing It Together episode, 100% the player would be a puzzle piece's uh, official competition, which is a Spanish film. So it's more about it's more about making, it's basically about making a movie that is designed to win awards uh, with mm. Penelope Cruz as this eccentric director and Antonio Banderas and Oscar Martinez as uh, a pair of actors who are starring in this terrible sounding. I feel like that's one of the things that is in every one of these movies about movies is that whenever they talk about the movie that they're making, it's always like, that sounds awful. Um, yeah. So again, this terrible sounding movie. And it's just, it's a very fun movie with, with, very good performances. Penelope Cruz is hilarious in it. And it, it similarly has sort of kind of uh, the uh, darker plot developments that the player has. So I like that. And then weirdly, in the new Downton Abbey movie, talking about singing in the rain, there's a whole substantial subplot about this, the transition from silent films to talkies, which was actually kind of the best part about that movie. So yeah. Uh, what about you watched Tank House earlier this year? Isn't that a movie about making movies as well? No, that's a movie about uh, making uh, theater. Uh, oh, stage get out of here. Yeah. Get out of here, Tank House. A, a, a couple other recent ones, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and uh, Dolomite is my name. Oh, yeah. 2019. Great, great. Both are really fun. Yeah. And uh, also for your consideration, the Christopher Guest movie. Yeah, yeah. I should revisit that because that was definitely my least favorite Christopher Guest movie at the time. Good ones, Dave. Yeah. And I want to throw one more because, and it's just based on what Josh said about the idea of the movie within the movie is never good, right? And also, if you're going to mention Christopher Guest, his first movie was The Big Picture, which was a movie about Hollywood. But the one I was thinking was, I actually thought the movie within the movie was probably better than the actual frame of the movie was Bergman Island from last year. Oh yeah, and that's a little different because they they spend so much time on the movie within the movie as like its own separate story. But you're right, that is an interesting film and it sort of blurs the lines between the actual story and the story within the story and uh you know, talking about uh Ingmar Bergman there from the Cannes Palme d'Or winner in 1992 brings it all back together there. So There it is. So I mean, you, you know, it's interesting, Josh, we all mentioned Barton Fink, but none of us mentioned Hail Caesar. So you can have yeah. different successes in this yeah. world. Anyway, I think this was a wonderful aside and I'm glad we did. Yeah, all, a lot of worthwhile movies to check out if people haven't seen them. We'll do it again when we do Awesome Movie Year 2002 and my pick is Adaptation. So. <laughs> I'm sure uh, yeah. we will. <laughs> Speaking of picks... If we ever do Awesome Movie Year 1985, and I don't even know how to find this, but do you guys know about the Robert Altman teen movie that like the teen wacky teen comedy that like no one's ever seen? Is that OC and Stiggs? Boom. Josh is the man. 
Is that is that movie like not available? I, I as I was just saying earlier, I know a lot of his movies are still hard to find, but I figured you could get them somehow. I don't know how to get OC and Stinks. I've never seen it available on anything. Okay, yeah, I don't know. I remember we watched we watched Brewster McCloud in our uh, film club with Tony Macklin. I think we might have had to get that on VHS. Although I believe now it's more widely available. It's it's had a big reassessment as it's, kind of a cult classic. It's basically like Altman's National Lampoon teen movie. It was made and released in 85 and then re-released in 87. And it just seems, I mean, how could we not want to watch this film? And I think even if that movie is bad, Altman is such a towering figure that all of his movies should be available. They're all, I'm sure, worthy of study. So I, it's, I, you know, with something like that, it could very well be just like rights issues or licensing or something. The reason that it's not available anywhere. Yeah, I just want to see it, Josh. Yeah, I'd be happy to see it, too. Um, so, I mean, as we said, this was kind of a big comeback for Altman. But what I love is that even though Altman had this big comeback and he made a number of highly acclaimed movies after this, including Shortcuts, which I which came out the following year. And I remember seeing that also as a teenager and just being absolutely blown away by it. And after seeing The Player and then seeing that, thinking this guy is just such a, a huge genius. And that was highly acclaimed. Gosford Park. Uh, the Company with Nev Campbell and his final film, A Prairie Home Companion in 2006. All of those very big critical successes. But what I love about Altman is that in the meantime, he just kept making whatever weird shit he felt like making at any time, including movies like Pret-a-Porter and Kansas City and Dr. T and the Women that just got like terrible reviews and weren't successful at all. But just like O.C. and Stiggs, he was just like, I'm just going to, he never stopped. Just I'm going on to the next thing. I'm going to do whatever there is that comes up for me. And I appreciate that about him. Right. Uh, he had that like kind of, cause uh, did he teach at university of Michigan in the eighties? Did we talk Maybe. about that? No, so I don't a lot know. of it were like co-product. I, I think a lot of it were, if not a lot, definitely there was that backing from the university of Michigan film department uh, in some of the projects and everything. So yeah, I mean, as we said in the three women episode, like just the towering figure who's made so many things that you got to see. Right. And there's still, despite, like I said, my early love for him, there's still tons of movies, not just obscure ones like O.C. and Stiggs that are hard to find, but even some of his most well-known films like MASH that I've still never seen that I really that I really ought to see. Yeah. Why don't you come over? We'll watch it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sounds like a good time. Josh, we've, uh, you know, of the stars, we've talked about Tim Robbins before. We've talked about Peter Gallagher before. Uh, so that's nice. Um, I would say I wanted to talk about Fred Ward, who played Walter, because he was the star of Reba Williams, which I believe Dave said was his favorite movie he didn't remember in the 80s. Yeah, and I finally rewatched it uh, just like a month ago or something. And it's actually pretty fun. It's it's very strange, but uh, it was fun. Yeah, Fred Ward, who just who died fairly recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's when I watched it after that happened. Didn't yeah. get a lot of chances to be a leading man, but that was one of the few that he did get. But he wasn't one of the uh, Crow, Crow sequels, the Crow Salvation as well. Oh, yeah, that's unfortunate. I don't I don't think I saw that one, but uh, he's great in this movie, by the way. Oh, he we is. didn't really talk about him much, but he, he is so good. And he's always, you know, he's the head of studio security, but he's the one who's always referencing these older films. And I love their one one sort of subtle thing is that he's always saying like, oh, you remember in this like, you know, movie from like the 40s when they did such and such a thing and that was so great. And then another character will be like, oh, yeah, it's just like when they did that same thing in this movie. That's right, from like, in 1988. Right. And he's like, oh, I've never heard of that. <laughs> so <laughs> he's only familiar with old movies, which is a great little touch. 
um, you know, another actor who recently passed away, who we talked about in Paris, Texas, was Dean Stockwell, who was one of the great character actors of the, you know, as long as he was around and, you know, to live and die in L.A. He had an Oscar nod for Married to the Mob and Blue Velvet. I like those two characters, Andy Sapella and Tom Oakley. You had mentioned Richard E. Grant as uh, the Tom Oakley character. Speaking of cult movies, Josh, have you ever heard of Whitnail and I, the first movie Richard E. Grant was in? Yeah, that's a big cult classic. Um, I remember watching that movie because it was such a cult classic, and I did not uh, appreciate its uh, whatever it is that it has. I did not appreciate it. Uh, but people love it. Yeah, that's certainly still rich. I mean, Richard E. Grant is great, and he's in a ton of things. He's always a very distinctive presence, um, and people still talk about that movie. And maybe I should watch it again. I don't. I, know. I watched it not too long ago for the same reasons, and I, I it, it kind of went over my head. I think too. You know, I liked it. I didn't love it, but people do love it and consider it incredibly influential as well. Right. I think it it is. And so maybe that's one of those movies that you can appreciate the influence more than the movie itself. I mean, they even made a documentary about the influence of that movie in the in Britain in the 80s. But um, you mentioned, Josh, that he's still doing so many things. Uh, of course, Dave loved him in The Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife. I don't know why. But um, Josh, we, uh, you know, recently of the last five years, he's just so good. And can you ever forgive me? He's amazing yes. in that movie. Yes, he was. And did he get an Oscar nomination for that movie? I, I, I think he did. I, think so. I didn't watch Dispatches from Elsewhere, but that was kind of the last big thing that he was co-starring in. I think that that 10 episode series with uh, Jason Segel and everything. Yeah, he's not uh he's good in that. He plays this sort of weird cult leader. That show was I don't I don't know about that, but he was good. Uh and he he's again, he's always good. I think he's in the new uh Jane Austen adaptation Persuasion that's uh about to come out or will have just come out by the time this episode right. is uh is out here. So, yeah, Richard E. Grant is is definitely great. Um I do want to, you know, mention Greta Skaki again because she, I mean, really aside from Tim Robbins is like the second most important actor in this film and she never really became a big star. She does a lot of uh TV guest starring stuff and supporting roles and a lot of B movies but has done a lot of stage acting, but but she's good in this and you kind of have to again, I think it's sort of tough to balance Griffin Mill with another character who's just as self-centered, but in a an entirely different way. And they they weirdly make for a perfect pair. Uh, she works internationally a lot, though, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that may be. She's uh she's uh, of Italian uh ancestry. I don't know if she works in maybe some European films or something like that, but they're still working, certainly. You know who else is working, Josh? Whoopi Goldberg. She's got oh, that egot, yes. Josh. She's she got does. the egot. She's got Although the she's, really, she's rarely acting. Right. I think she is putting together Sister Act 3 right now. Mm. And then she's in the she's acting in the Anansi Boys, the Neil Gaiman adaptation of yet another limited series coming up. Right. And so, well, that's probably more than she's done in quite a while because she's been busy hosting The Talk or The View, not The Talk. The Which talk she got is- her uh, Emmy for. Yeah. Well, you know, good for her. She's 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 enjoyable. As you said, she's fun in this movie and, you know, the right kind of presence for the character, because, you know, when Whoopi Goldberg shows up as the cop, that there's going to be something off kilter about that person. I think she's got a lot more left in the tank as an actress, too. I hope so. I apologize. I don't know if it's a Nancy or a Nancy Boyd's. Yeah, I don't know either. I actually read that book, but I don't I don't know either. By the way, Sister Act was also this year too, wasn't it? In 92, it could be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. Sister the year. first Sister Act is a great movie. I love it. Uh, I 
I'm sure I saw it, but I don't really remember anything about it. And I feel like it just has become sort of a punchline for something goofy, but maybe it shouldn't be. It's a really well-crafted film. Well, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll reserve judgment until I, you know, ever see it again someday. Um, the one other actor in this movie that I wanted to mention is Cynthia Stevenson, who plays Griffin's uh, current girlfriend that he kind of dumps in favor of June or doesn't even really bother dumping, just kind of stops talking to, who is also another executive who's working uh, below him. And she she was uh, all over like sitcoms and stuff in the 90s. Um, I remember watching... For some reason, I was a big fan of Bob, which was like Bob Newhart's like third sitcom or something like that. I never watched the original Bob Newhart's uh, show or Newhart, his more popular shows, but his like less short-lived show in the 90s, I for some reason was always watching. And I remember Cynthia Stevenson from that, uh, as well as from Dead Like Me. So uh, I feel like she's kind of underrated and doesn't do a whole lot. Uh, I mean, she works, but nothing really notable. Um, she was in multiple Airbud movies, which I noticed. So you know what? I'm going to give you a movie that I like her in because you, you know we we always cover uh, Christmas movies, and uh, I believe it's is it it's might be even a Thanksgiving movie, Home for the Holidays, mm. the Holly Hunter movie. I like that movie. It's from the mid '90s, '95, and I think that's a underrated film right there. Good holiday film. I've heard that a lot from people, actually, that it's it's underrated and I haven't seen it, but something to check out. Didn't Jodie Foster direct that film? Yeah, I think she did, Josh. So uh, Brian James, who plays Joel Levinson, Blade Runner, 48 Hours, The Fifth Element, uh, died pretty young, sadly, in his 50s. Always played like the heavy. Uh, I think we got to mention Sidney Pollack, who's not just a, a very good actor, but an incredible legendary director. One best picture and director for Out of Africa. He made Tootsie and they shoot horses, don't they? Uh, you might remember him as an actor in Eyes Wide Shut. And yes. then uh, lastly, Josh, Vincent D'Onofrio is, I'm not even going to say having a career resurgence because he's always working so much, but he's just killing it right now. Like he's such a big part of the Marvel universe going forward. He was in the eyes of Tammy Faye uh, recently. He's just on fire lately. Yeah, he's very good. And it's 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 sort of shocking to see young, skinny, head full of hair Vincent D'Onofrio in this movie. He really, I, I was like, he looks like David Cross kind of almost in this film with the glasses. I could see that. So yeah, very, very different looking. But of course, Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, always great. And, you know, brings us back to the the dominant force in Hollywood right now, which is Marvel. So, Which Lyle Lovett is not in. Sorry. Lyle that. Lovett is not, but it was a favorite of Robert Altman. Yeah. Um, you know, of the major actors in this film, Tim Robbins, Fred Ward, Lyle Lovett, and Peter Gallagher were all in Shortcuts, which was Altman's next film. And uh, Lyle, Lyle Lovett, definitely an Altman favorite. I want to say, did Lyle Lovett and Julia Roberts possibly meet on the set of an Altman movie? Mm. Um I, I, I don't know. I, I might be wrong about that, but I enjoy Lyle Lovett, uh, you know, as a What musician. a good look. What a great look he's got. He's very distinctive. He always looks exactly like Lyle Lovett. He's Lyle unlike Lovett. unlike Vincent D'Onofrio, he, who looks completely different here. Lyle Lovett never looks different. Good yeah, for him. Dave, if you were a Carter, you could get a little Lyle Lovett thing going. But Yeah, I'm you, sure I could do You that. could become an acclaimed country musician too, Dave. Yeah, Dave. <laughs> put some work in. <laughs> yeah, I'll try. Any, uh, any other legacy uh, points you want to mention, Jason? Uh, I think it's time for a comeback of Mark Morrison. Okay, let's let's <laughs> let's move on from that. That is the player, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. 
I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. Uh, my website, Go for Jason, was accidentally quote unquote murdered by Griffin Mill in a parking lot at one day a long time ago. AwesomeMovieYear.com is still up and running. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. You can find me at JoshBellHatesEverything.com where I may have written something a long time ago about some Altman movies. At JoshBellHatesEverything on Facebook and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Yeah, if you like talking about movies in terms of like it's like out of Africa meets pretty woman. You'd probably like piecing it together. Uh, so check it out wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at piecing pod. And Josh, you are the most, uh, I think, are we both now, Dave, the most frequent guests on piecing it. Josh together? is one above you now. Oh, so, yeah. uh, yeah, that's gotta, fine. Gotta I can do another episode that. to, uh, to tie with me, Jason. I yeah. will be at the end of this month. We do the preview episode of new trailers every month. So I'm happy to do it. There you go. Right. You'll make it happen. So do listen to all the episodes of Piecing It Together, not just ours, but make sure to listen to ours first. Listen to all of the yes. episodes that we're on and then listen to the rest yeah, of the episodes. Yeah, listen to those other schlubs afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> so Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, it's our documentary pick of 1992, uh, a movie that you campaigned for that I know nothing about. It's called Baraka. Yeah, that'll be... A uh, kind of movie that we've never talked about before. So we'll see how that goes. Tune in next time for Baraka. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.